Hi, I'm Sunny Dean. And I'm Scott Drakeford. And this is the Publishing Radio Podcast. In 2022, we both launched debut novels in the same genre with the same publisher in the same year. But despite having very similar starts, our books and subsequently each of our careers went in very different directions. That pattern repeats itself throughout the industry over and over. Why do some books succeed while others seem to be dead on arrival? In this podcast, we aim to answer those questions and many more, along with how to build and maintain an author career. Everyone signing a contract deserves to know what they're really signing up for. In an industry that loves its secrets, we'll be sharing real details from real people. We'll cover the gamut of life as a big five published author, from agents to publishing contracts, finances, and more. Uh, we are here for episode three with Clay Harmon, author of Flames and Mirror. And today we're really going to focus on what the a very different publishing experience, which is what it looks like to publish with a mid-sized press and what that means, what the different sizes of publishers mean and how it compares. Because when you're an author who's on submission, you might have a lot of different scenarios that come up in terms of publishing deals. And there's a lot to work through, a really complicated decision to make and what goes into that. Yeah, no, I'm uh, happy to be here. I've been really looking forward to doing this. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, all three of us have been friends for for a good while now. Uh, we all uh, debuted in the same year, and people who debut in the same year tend to to search one another out, and so that's how we all connected with each other. And um, when I found out that Sunni and Scott were doing a podcast, you know, I definitely had to to jump on that wagon and have to do an episode with you guys. So yeah, looking looking forward to it. Yeah, so we're talking about different sizes of press, and roughly speaking, there's the big five, and people know those. The big five companies have dozens of imprints, actually hundreds of imprints total. And outside of that, you have what we call mid-sized publishers like Rebellion, <laughs> Angry Robots, Kensington, Scholastic. They really vary as well. Some of them have almost as much money as a large publisher like Penguin or Macmillan. Some of them are on the smaller side, and there's a massive range of experiences that they can offer and, and money that they can offer authors, and signing with them can mean different things for your career. Um, but we are talking about publishers who offer mass market distribution, offer marketing, but aren't technically one of the big five. Yeah, that was kind of just how my impression of what a mid-sized publisher was, was that they, they had national distribution but just wasn't one of those those big five publishers. Um, and that's, you know, that's how they differ from, say, a small press, because um, mm -hmm. it seems like small presses in general have a pretty tough time getting into um, bookstore chains like like Barnes & Noble. Yeah, and from, uh, I'm not an expert. From my perspective, though, the only real difference between most of those mid-sized publishers, you know, this is assuming that they're fairly competent, the only difference is really they don't have the, the cash to sign huge, huge deals. They're not, especially for debuts, they're not, they're not uh, signing big deals right out of the gate. But other than that, I don't see a huge difference, especially if they do have the ability to get books uh, into Barnes & Noble, into indie bookstores. Uh, you know, they're, they're doing all the work to get audiobooks out. Uh, you know, multinational distribution, 
in, I think, UK and US at the very least, right? Clay, isn't your book in both the UK and US? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I actually uh, got to see it in Waterstones here in the UK uh, the the other day. It was uh, very exciting. But yeah, it's uh, it's available both in the in the US and the UK. But yeah, I think that that distinction of of money is really seems to to make all of the difference. Um, it, it seems that way just because of the amount of money that a, a big five publisher can put into a title, um, as far as marketing wise, um, to build up hype, you know, before the book comes out. Um, seems to be a very, very big thing. Um, and so uh, excluding that, it seems like most things are, are the same. Uh, you know, we've, we've all compared our, our um, publishing journeys, you know, leading up to our release and after, and, and there does seem to be a lot of, uh, a lot of similarities there. So yeah, my book came out last July and yeah, it's uh that that July seemed pretty similar to to how your uh, your your release month went, uh, Scott. Um, there were definitely some differences though, yeah. which we can get into. But yeah, there's a a lot of similarities between the the midsize and the big five. Yeah, should, should we? Yeah. It was a good time to get into Clay's journey to publication, actually. Um, yeah, no, okay. I can I can start from the very beginning, um, kind of go in the cliff notes. This is covering ten years of of history, so I, I can be brief for for some of those stretches. But I started writing uh, January of two thousand ten. I finished the first draft of my first book in August of two thousand eleven, so a year and a half. The very next day, I sent my first query letter. That was a huge mistake. Um, I ended up probably querying that, you know. 100, 150 times. Um, and then while I was doing that, I was writing the sequel to that book, which turned out was a big mistake. Um, because <laughs> writing the sequel, you know, if, if the, the first book doesn't sell, then, you know, you've, I wouldn't say it was a waste of time because, you know, it helped me hone my craft a little bit, but you can't, you can't query a sequel. So, uh, when I was halfway through the third book, I kind of realized that maybe I need to, uh, to, to work on a different project. And so, um, I ended up, putting the first book into a drawer, um, and started writing. I, I didn't finish the third book of that series. I wrote halfway. So I don't really count that as the, the number of manuscripts I had to write to, uh, before I became, um, published. But the first book after that, that big project of the three books was, um, I, I was writing YA at the time. Um, and so the first book was like a contemporary fantasy. And then I, uh, went and the, the separate project after that was a YA horror. Um, that's the book that I got into Pitch Wars with. That was back in 2016. Um, that book yeah. went from YA horror to more YA contemporary. And I went, I continued querying after Pitch Wars after that, I ended up um, putting that in the drawer. Um, and I was, the book after that, oh man, I've written so many manuscripts, I'm getting mixed up. The, 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 the one I got into Pitch Wars with, the YA horror was, that came after a, another YA sci-fi that I wrote. And so one, two, three, four. I actually ended up getting an agent offer for that one, but I ended up declining that agent offer because the agent was a very nice agent. Um, they seemed really great. Uh, I really vibed with them on the phone. But afterwards, I started doing more research for the agency at large, and I was not a fan of the stuff that I was reading about. So it just, 
I was kind of on the fence enough as it was um, because they were a newer agent. Typically, um, as a querying author, if you're looking into signing with a, a newer agent, you got to look at the the support network that they have. Um, if they have a good mentor, if they're at an established agency, then in a lot of cases, that can be great to, to sign with a newer agent. But this particular agency didn't have that kind of track record that I was looking for. They seem to really exclusively uh, sell to small presses. Um, and, you know, my dream was to, to be in Barnes & Noble someday because I'd worked at Barnes & Noble and, you know, that was part of the, the, the dream was to, to be on the other side of that and have a book there. So, yeah, so I ended up declining the, the offer um, and I ended up ultimately putting that book in the drawer. Um, and then I kind of made the decision that I wasn't very good at writing young adult. And so I made the switch to adult fantasy and that book ended up being uh, Flames of Mira. So... I wrote that. Uh, I probably sent out a dozen or so queries before I queried Joshua, my current agent. Um, I met him at San Jose Worldcon back in 2018. And this was when he had just 50 pages of my book at that time. Um, after I met him, he uh, he offered an R&R, a revise and resubmit. And then what began was several months of, of edits with him, just a lot of back and forth. And I ended up signing with him about a year after I sent that first query. Um, and so I signed with him May, I think, of 2019. Uh, and I've been with him ever since. And the I went on submission in 2019 in the summertime. Um, and I was on submission for several months. Uh, I think I got the email from Michael Rowley at Rebellion that they were looking, that he was looking to, to take my book to acquisitions in, in February of 2020. Um, and then the offer came in right around when, uh, when the whole COVID thing happened. So that was a, a brief amount of uncertainty, but they, they assured me that they were going to continue on with the, uh, with publishing my book. Um, it would just end up getting published a little, a little later than, than initially um, offered. So originally the book was supposed to come out fall of 2021 and then after COVID happened, it got pushed to spring of 2022. And then about within the, the year within before it released, the uh, the supply chain issues started happening and there was a paper shortage. And so it got pushed from, from April of 2022 to July of 2022. And that's, uh, that's when my book came out. So yeah, that's the, uh, the 10,000 foot view of 10 years of, of, of writing before I actually got a book published. Did I hear right that your book was on submission for six months? Six months? No, it was, I mean, it was close. I think it was eight or nine months. It, officially, I think it was nine months. Yeah. It was on submission for nine months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is this, does cow. that surprise you? Um, not necessarily. Uh, uh, I mean, especially doesn't surprise me given how I've seen publishing operate since you know, becoming a published author and meeting yeah. all of you and hearing your stories, right? Um, the unofficial figure that I was told by Naomi is that for debut sci-fi and fantasy, you expect to be on submission six to 10 months. Wow. On average, but then COVID happened and that went out the window and now it's God knows, so. Yeah, I kind of got my foot in the door right as uh, as COVID happened, so yeah. That's when all the normal stuff stopped. Yeah, that's incredible. 
because I, I mean, I'm just flashing back to when I was on submission, right? Uh, I think that was 2016. And I was, I was, <laughs> I was very impatient, right? When it went out and it had been a few months and I think I got three rejections out of nine that my agent Matt had sent to, uh, like it, it was full panic mode and Matt was uh, told me that, hey, this might be a good opportunity for us to take some of the feedback and, and do a few more edits, uh, just in case the other editors agree with uh, some of these things that have been brought up uh, by the people that rejected, right? But had I known that it was typical for a, a book to be on submission for six to 10 months for a debut, I might have been able to breathe a little easier. So that's very good to hear. I mean, it's hard to say what typical is because it really does vary. Like the, the I've told you guys the story before, the shortest person I've ever known for writing adult fantasy. So the legend goes, went from agent offer to publishing deal in 48 hours. And then I've known people who were on submission for three to five years with the same book. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think usually three to four months is when I started getting rejections for Anchor. And that means that that's when people are actually getting around to it and reading it. And then if they consider it or they're asking colleagues to read it, that's another three or four months, which is why you get that kind of figure, uh, I think. Yeah. Um, in my specific instance, because um, like Sunny said, it varies. You know, It's so circumstantial from person to person. In my specific case, uh, my agent Joshua, he, he reps some very big names. He's, he's a bit of a rock star in the, in the industry. And so oftentimes when he submits to editors, uh, editors really take notice to, to his submissions. And so I got a fair number of rejections fairly quickly. I would say within the first three months, um, let me preface it by saying that, um, my agent submitted my book to, I think roughly 18 or so, um, editors all at once. Um, I know that some agents will kind of do multiple rounds of submission, um, see how one goes before possibly going back and doing edits. Oh yeah, Naomi did that as well. One blast, shotgun blast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the the sh shotgun submission. Yeah. So yeah. So Joshua sent it out to, you know, almost two dozen um, editors and we got a, a good number of, of rejections within those first few months. And I think it was because uh, I went on submission, I would say the last week of June in uh, 2019, I think around September or so we had gotten, you know, a fair number of rejections. And that was when I was kind of really starting to 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 get worried um, that my book wasn't going to sell. And it stayed, and we got a, a number of uh, rejections kind of trickle in over the the following six months after that. And when Joshua emailed me that Michael at Rebellion was was seriously considering, you know, acquiring my book, that was well past the point where I was kind of, you know, figuring that the 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 Flames of Mirror was a lost cause. And so, yeah, it uh, it was a very long nine months. I, I'd have to say, being on submission for that long, while it can be, you know, typical for for some people, that doesn't, you know, that definitely doesn't lessen the the impact that it has on your on your mental state. Because um, a lot of you'll hear from a lot of uh, published authors that being on submission is worse than being on uh, uh, in the query trenches. Um, while being in the query trenches is really awful in its own way. Um, when you're on submission, there's just something so tangible about it's just so much easier to visualize. You're, you're almost at the finish line. You know, all you have to get is a yes from an editor and basically the dream that you've been pursuing for, you know, 
X number of months or X number of years is, is being fulfilled. So knowing that you're that close, uh, makes the rejections that, that much tougher. Um, so yeah, I, when I was on submission for those nine months or so, um, I don't think I really wrote, um, at all for the first couple of months. Um, and I had been writing, you know, more or less nonstop for, for the 10 years, uh, prior. Um, it was just, so it was, I was checking my email, you know, day in and day out, you know, hoping for that, that, you know, that yes. Um, so once I was able to finally pick up writing again, you know, after a couple of months, that, that made it easier, um, to cope with, with submission. My question, I guess my, my general question is, uh, that's going through my mind is, is whether there's a strong correlation between, you know, deal size and deal type and how long it takes to be acquired. Because mine, my book sat on submission for a while and there was a whole back and forth process there. Uh, but I do know of others that didn't go immediately, right? That weren't the 48 hour acquisition thing. And Sunny, if I remember right, Book Eaters was a pretty quick acquisition, right? You got a preempt from Tor. The, the answer that my the Essa always gives, and I think shipping handling used to always give, is it depends. But the the thing that people say, the quiet part out loud, I guess, is that generally the faster submission goes, the better off. Because it means there's buzz. It means there's excitement. It means someone is yeah. afraid that your book will be bought by somebody else if they don't buy it first. Um, and it, mm -hmm. obviously, that's not always the case. The... The, I guess the standout example is is she who should not be named J.K. Rowling, on submission for twelve months. The last publisher, you know, bought it for like a middling amount, and and it, obviously that took off. But um, for most people, that that's kind of not what goes on. Yeah, generally there there is a yeah. link. The example that comes to mind is one that I won't share on behalf of another person, but uh. uh I do know, and I think we know of someone who sold, I think after two or three months is, is what I remember them saying, two or three months on submission. And it sold for a very good amount. The publisher uh, wrote a good check and supported the book really well. And it, it's done you know, fairly well. Uh, so it doesn't seem like a hard and fast rule that you have to go uh, you know, within 48 hours or weeks or even the first few months to get, uh, you know, your, your dream deal, but it certainly doesn't hurt. Huh? Yeah. So one of the hard truths that I really learned when it came to publishing was just how, how much hype dictated the whole process from, from beginning to end. Um, you know, on the editor side, uh, people like to get excited about things. It's like the stock market. People are speculating and what they think will be big. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of a little bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then uh, even, you know, later on in the process, when it comes to, say, say marketing uh, on like the bookseller's behalf, for instance, they, they want to see the, the shiny new project that's coming out, you know, in three months. Uh, and even on a consumer part, uh, people only read so many books per year. Um, and so they tend to gravitate toward the titles that everyone else is talking about. And so, yeah, it, it was just it, it was hard to to except that um, that merit doesn't, you know, get you 100% of the way there, um, that you can, you know, write a great book, but if people don't know about it, they're not going to read it. And a lot of times people, the way people learn about books is by hearing it from other people through, through buzz and through hype. Yeah. And, and it's crazy to think that 
that submission process, right? Where your book is going to, in my case, nine, your case, 18 uh, different editors, that process dictates so much of the hype that your book is going to get, right? Nine people or 18 people, whatever it is, it's still a hand and or uh, footful of people are, are dictating almost everything about how your book launch is going to go. And that just sucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and going back to the, to the point about, you know, there being a, a rough correlation to how quickly a book sells to how good the, the deal ends up being. Um, so my book was on submission for nine months and the, the deal that I was offered was, was $5,000 per title. And so uh, Joshua um, ended up negotiating it up from 10,000 because it was a two book deal from 10,000 to 10,000 ten thousand dollars 250 so it wasn't they they weren't willing to budge more or less and we also even had to to give up the audio rights too it, it was it, it was unfortunate um because when we got the the offer from rebellion um we ended up also getting a, an offer from uh it might have been recorded books or 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 there was an audio company that had made an offer just on the audio rights and they, they were offering, I think another 10,000 for that. And so that effectively doubled the, my, my deal size, but rebellion refused to give up uh, audio rights. And the reason um, I was told was that they had recently um, uh, signed a partnership with penguin uh, in the UK. And so they were um, giving all of their, you know, having penguin produce all of their audiobooks. Um, and so they weren't budging on it. You know, Joshua um, did a, a really great job of, you know, trying to raise hell on my behalf to try and retain those audio rights. But, um, you know, it's only speculation, but, you know, what what was the alternative for me? You know, I if I said no, you know, that was saying no to fulfilling this dream that I had pursued for for a decade. And so we ended up, you know, letting them keep the the, the audio rights and. Uh, I mean, Penguin Audio, you know, produced it and I got a really fantastic narrator. He did a, a an amazing job. Uh, his name's Luke Francis. So it, it worked out in that sense. But, you know, it definitely um, took a, a big I took a big hit as far as uh, the advance number went. So that kind of goes back to the the, the early point that um, the big difference between a mid-sized publisher and one of the big five is is money. Um, from my understanding, a lot of the mid-sized publishers tend to run in that very rough range. Um, yeah. that I, I've heard them, you know, doing larger deals, but that tends to be um, definitely the exception and not the rule. Um, so, yeah. Uh, what did you kind of think when this deal offer came through? Did you know who Rebellion was? Did you know that they were not big five? Um, did you have a, a kind of sense of like what the advance meant or how you felt about it or any of that? That's a surprisingly hard question to answer because, you know, over the course of years, as you're pursuing this, you're slowly learning bits and pieces about publishing and how it works. And so I would consider myself, you know, very well con uh, informed these days versus how I was back then. Um, so trying to remember um, my thoughts of Rebellion at the time, because this was, it's, you know, March of 2023. And when I got the offer, it was, it was about three years ago. From now and so what what i knew back then was definitely different i don't think i knew much about rebellion at the time um 
I knew that they had, you know, uh, international distribution. They were um, asking to purchase the, the world rights, um, which for those who don't know, you know, that's typically, you know, North America in, in the UK. Um, and so they, they had the ability to fulfill on, on those world rights of getting my books into the U S and into the UK. Um, I, I didn't know this at the time, but, uh, during one call that I had with Joshua, um, he said that this was probably, I would say, a few months after my book came out that my book was in approximately 50 to 75% of all Barnes and Nobles in the U S um, which I was, that, that's uh, that was higher than I expected to be honest, because at that point um, I, I, I had accepted the fact that my book was going to have a fairly modest release. Um, and I, I, I guess I was kind of, I kind of told myself that, modest meant much smaller than it really was. Um, and so, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised when I found out that it was in that many bookstores. But of course, when it comes to selling a book, you know, there's uh, getting it into the the bookstores is one thing, but actually getting it to um, getting readers to notice it is something else entirely, which comes to, to the marketing aspect of it. Now, did did your publisher, did Rebellion tell you that they were going to publish in the UK and that they were going to produce the audiobook up front or was this really just them asking for the rights and you had to take it on faith that they were going to do that and it ended up that they did uh i mean i at the time i had no reason to suspect anything else they had told me you know that they had to keep the audio rights to give to Penguin to, to produce it. And as far as I was concerned at that point, um, the audiobook was going to be made. And in my situation, you know, that's exactly what happened. Uh, yeah. I would say, because my book came out in July of 2022, I think around April or so, maybe a little earlier, they um, put me into contact. Or actually, I got an email from someone at Rebellion saying that the, the question was, hey, Clay, um, we're looking into producing, you know, your your audiobook do you want uh, an american accent or a, a british accent and i was like oh boy it's starting and so <laughs> i it was fantasy so i picked british accent because i thought that was super cool of course yeah. yeah and then shortly afterward or i can't remember but they gave me three options of voice actors um and all three of them had recorded some a various lengths of the first chapter that i got to listen to and so yeah. I got to pick my favorite one, and my favorite one by far was was Luke Francis. He, yeah, like I said, he he did a really great job with with my audiobook. And so after I chose him, he actually reached out to me on Twitter um, and had some really really nice things to say about my book. He had read it at that point and was doing a second read through um, to just come up with all the questions that he had regarding, you know, pronunci pronunciations, but I think more importantly, just kind of the dispositions of the characters and or how I might have uh, imagined how they how they sounded. Uh, and so I kind of had a bit of a back and forth with him, uh, gave him my thoughts. And then I don't think I really heard from him after that. Uh, the the audiobook came out and I gave it a listen. And I was just yeah, I was blown away by 
by how well he did. Um, and so, yeah, it was overall, it was, a, it was a really positive experience for the audiobook. That's probably almost identical, actually, to the experience I had with, with Tor in the audiobooks. They asked about preferences and had a selection of three, and they looked for authors who were northern and neurodiverse, and I thought that was really cool of them because they didn't, sorry, Harper produced the audio. Uh, I thought that was really cool of them because they didn't have to go that extra mile. I don't know if you want to, you, you can cut it if not, Scott, but feel free to, to go into your experiences with audio, which I know is possibly a sore point. <laughs> Zero cuts here, motherfuckers. I will offer a little nugget of wisdom or at the very least a hypothesis here, right? So Rebellion, even though their deal sizes uh, that Clay's talking about was pretty much set in stone. It, it is on the lower end of what uh, a big five would offer, though not really that far from what I got from Tor, right? Their initial offer was three books for 25, and my agent got them up to three books for 30, right? My guess is that that money meant a lot more to Rebellion and was really just their expenditure they felt like they could put out in terms of securing the rights with a significant intent to then utilize those rights to the fullest because that contract and that expenditure mattered to them, right? And they track it. Whereas with Big Five, I am not the only one that I know of, right, that signed over audio rights signed over world English rights, and then didn't have one or the other or both produced, right? So in my case, um, they he produced the book, obviously, and published hardcover into the US, but did not publish into the UK. As far as I know, didn't shop the rights uh, with UK publishers further than, I guess, making it available to Tor UK or Macmillan, somebody in the UK. Um, and I got vague answers as to what that process looked like, uh, but it didn't seem like an active process to, to really try to push it into the UK. And audio, we basically had radio silence up until a month before launch, maybe two months before launch, at which point we finally got an answer of, yeah, we're not making the audio or we're not making it yet. And luckily, um, Tor was super cool about giving the rights back. Like my agent only had to ask once um, and we've already got them back and we're trying to figure out what to do with them now. Um, but yeah, I, I think there is something to be said for a publisher who's invested in you and in your book, regardless of that deal size. And that deal size might make more of a difference um, when you also account for who's, you know, cutting that check. Because, yeah, I'm, I'm not the only one uh, published by Big Five at the lower end, right? The, the lower ranges of Big Five debut deal sizes that didn't get into the UK or didn't get an audiobook or both. That seems to be pretty common actually with pretty recent debuts that got uh, smaller deal sizes. And I mean, that that's kind of 
my sense of the point of this podcast is to really inform the listener of all of these, you know, intangibles or, or things that are are going on behind the curtain that they would otherwise have, you know, no access to. Uh, people tend to think that, you know, the more money that a publisher offers uh, a prospective, you know, author, um, that the, the better off they're going to be. But while Scott got a, a, a much higher uh, advance than I did, uh, it seems that overall my, my publishing experience has, has been, has been better than, than his um, as far as, as far as marketing goes uh, specifically is, is what I mean. Um, I'll say this too, Clay, your cover is gorgeous, right? And I, I'm far from the only person who's, who's said that, but your cover is gorgeous. They, they, put out audio they got your book into barnes and noble into the uk so that's awesome and that's something people should know when they're looking at you know even when they're talking to their agent about who should we submit to and you know i I think a lot of authors with high hopes are going to say only big five only go big five but i mean i think it's really worth uh exploring those options uh with publishers that might not have the upfront deal size but are going to do right by the author. Yeah, and you actually brought up uh, something that I wanted to talk about um, regard, regarding you know the benefits that may not be immediately obvious, um, specifically about the cover um, and how it relates to uh, input that the author has with, with, their, with their publisher. Um, in my specific case, uh, I had a very uh, specific image in my head of what I wanted the cover to be. And I shared those thoughts with with uh, with Michael, who my editor, who was kind of acting as as liaison um, for the the rest of the publisher. Um, and that's what editors often do is they they're project managers and they tend to connect the authorial input with the the other departments that are um, involved in the project. But I I had the this image of you know this this arm um, with a clenched fist and, and and lava dripping off of the fist and I, I shared that with Michael and I didn't really hear anything from him for a while because um, this was still pretty early on in the process and then he eventually reached out to me saying that they had hired that the that Rebellion had hired on a a graphic design company out of London to do some. I think work on on spec, which basically means they do like a quick workup of what the cover might be, and then if the if the client you know wants to go forward to it, then they'll they'll refine it. But the images that um, that this graphic design company you know provided were not images that I, I liked. I I was very di- diplomatic in you know how I shared my feedback, but it just wasn't something that I I wanted as as a cover, and so I shared that with Michael. And then he ended up uh, doing another round with them and got, you know, another a potential image for my cover. And I, I didn't like that one either. And I, I shared that with Michael. And he he kind of was very, you know, vague and un- uncertain about, you know, where things were going to go after that point. And so I didn't really hear from him for a while. And then I did, uh, I would say probably six weeks later, he emailed me saying that he had gone through a couple more rounds with the, this graphic design company and ended up uh, just moving forward with someone else. And the person that they ended up going with was Larry Rostan, who, when I looked up the, the covers he had done, I was, I was blown away by, by the, the covers. He's done some really well-known um, books. And so I got really excited at that point. And I was really... I was I was assured, or I, I felt very reassured that 
the, my publisher was actually listening to me and actually, you know, taking what I had to say into account, which I'd heard so many horror stories of, of authors, you know, giving up creative control because that's, you know, the name of the game in publishing and getting these things that just, they were not, they did not, you know, like at all. And so I, when I heard it was Larry, I got excited and then I didn't hear back for a couple months. And then I ended up getting a, an initial draft of, of, of Flames of Mirrors cover, and it was basically, you know, what it is now. And I was just flabbergasted that not only did it look awesome, but it was the thing that I had suggested suggested like six months prior. They had actually listened to me and 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 ran with it, and I was really happy with that. And so I had, you know, maybe some minor suggestions here or there, but um, even with the minor stuff, they 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 took and what I had to say into account, and I. We'll always be be thankful for that, and that trend uh, continues with the uh, the sequels cover as well. They because I don't know if it's live at the time of you know people listening to this, but uh, the the cover was was basically what I had suggested during that initial conversation with what I wanted the sequels cover to be, and so that's that's a big thing that people overlook or people just don't have information on is when it comes to collaborating with your publisher how willing they are to listen so i, I don't know how your guys's uh, experiences differ from mine oh sorry oh um i've heard from uh, other friends with midside presses specifically angry robot are, are apparently pretty good at allowing collaboration i have a friend who designed his own cover for angry robot he's an artist which is amazing um and he so obviously he got it exactly the way he wanted. I had no input really. I, I think it was written into the contract that Tor had to get approval from us, but and everything they sent to us. Um, I mean, we suggested changes, and they basically said very politely, "No, we're not doing that." Uh, and I think it came from a good place. It just came from this place of like, "Look, we're investing in this book. You don't know what the fuck you're doing. Let the adults handle this," um, but in a nice way. And we were kind of like, okay, fine, as long as you don't. My only request to the tour is to not have a boobs ass woman on the on the cover. You know, the one where she's like pacing away, twisting. Um, I hate those covers, and and that they they had no intention of doing that, so it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I I got basically the the same treatment from tour. I was somewhat involved in the thematic brainstorming session with my editor but then I I really didn't see or hear anything for months and then got the got the artwork back and said well here are a whole bunch of things that aren't quite right uh and, and uh you know with respect to not only what we had talked about but with what was in the book um and they were basically like, well, it's kind of what it is. And they made minor changes uh, from there. But yeah, that, I wasn't super involved. And I was, I was going to ask as well, because you both had hardback releases. Uh, and so did I. And I think there's like an interesting distinction there. I don't know if, if Rebellion was involved in that thought process. But Scott and I talked to the, you know, in our bookseller chat last week, one of the things they said is that hardback is a very difficult sell for debut authors. And it often doesn't work so well unless it's for a lead title uh yeah i mean when i found out that my book was going to be hardcover i i was really excited at first but then i got really nervous after that um because typically when a book is released if it's released as paperback um you're not going to get a, you know a hardcover afterwards um that's the typical you know situation um and so the fact that i was going hardcover you know 
it was going to eventually come with a with a paperback release uh, anyway. So getting, you know, the best of both worlds in my mind sounded like a really great thing. But then as I started, you know, doing more research, I, I realized that a lot of readers tend to to not buy hardcovers. Um, and that's, you know, that's a personal um that that's a preference of mine as well because I I prefer reading you know paperbacks as well and so once I made that connection in my mind that you know I'm an unknown author with a lot writing on 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 this debut release and that there were a significant portion of the readership that weren't going to buy my book just because it was hardcover that's when I you know really started getting a little worried um, as far as uh, how it's been overall I'm still happy that I you know was able to do the hardcover release um, just because that that initial point that you know getting the best of both worlds my paperback is uh slated to release uh, later this summer um july and so and it's going to come with a new cover as well so getting getting all of that you know it is nice but it definitely i know that my sales have taken a hit because it it releases hardcover mine was supposed to be trade paperback release that's what we signed our contract uh based on and then I don't even remember exactly when it was, but probably six months before what eventually became my actual publication date. Uh, they said, oh, and we're doing this in hardcover, by the way. And <laughs> like no other discussion, no uh, anything. I I just w- was told that it's going to be hardcover now. And I remember I asked, is this a good thing? And both my editor and agent said, Yes, <laughs> but still wouldn't go into it much. Uh, and my hope at the time, besides the the brief ego boost, right? Because I think authors want their book to be in hardcover, and there's kind of this legacy feeling of if you're a legit author, your book's going to be in hardcover, and it's it's going to be a big deal. My thought at the time was, okay, maybe this means that they're going to invest in it more because, you know, they're putting out a more expensive uh, edition and it's going to be more expensive for them to produce, et cetera. But I I really think it's more about margin. I think uh, my guess is that publishers margin is better on hardcovers. Oh, absolutely. So to boost their ability to at least break even and not take a hit on, on producing your book, I think, or at least my book, they went to, hardcover and I you know hard hard to say but I agree with you anecdotally my preferences for paperback and trade paperback in particular and the price point is obviously a whole lot better on a paperback and for a debut author that nobody's heard of and that doesn't get the really big push of oh look at this you know look at this book and doesn't have sales reps really pushing it to bookstores and and whatever else yeah uh, uh hardcover's kind of a a hard sell. But yeah, I guess the the thing that I kind of want to hone in on for readers is that to look across all these factors and go, when we're looking at books from the perspective of why does one book succeed and why does one fail, because publishers are taking these lots of different decisions that create a feedback loop. You know, you you buy the world rights, but you you don't choose to publish it in certain countries. You buy the audio rights, but you don't make the audio or you make it late, which effectively shoots your audio sales in the foot. or you release in the wrong format because it's slightly better for you and you you don't mind taking the gamble, but it might tank an author's career. And all of that creates additional issues where they come back. So I have friends where their book, the audio for the book was produced, but it's produced eight months after the book released. So sales for it sucked. 
And then the publisher comes back and says, well, your audio didn't sell, so we're not doing audio for the next book. Uh, and so on. And it's a vicious cycle or your hardback didn't sell because you're a debut author. So we're not, you know, your, your next book deal doesn't happen or it's smaller. And all of these things collate together into one big picture of, of what's going on and, and why books are kind of shifting up and down these sales ranks. Yeah. Um, and just going back to the to the hardcover, you know, at first I um, was told that Flames of Mirror was going to release as a paperback. Uh, and then when I found out it was going to release in a hardcover, I found out that uh, they were kind of trying this this string of releases where, where all of the books were, were going to come out in, in hardcover. And it kind of made me come to this realization that um, I imagine a lot of people that work in publishing um, love the idea of of connecting, you know, great books with with readers who are going to love them. But at the end of the day, publishing is a business. Um, they're there to make money. And so when I realized that these decisions that were being made about, you know, that would significantly affect the performance of my book, it, it wasn't about getting my book into the hands of readers that who might enjoy it. it. It was about, you know, being able to make the most amount of money with my book. And so that... I wouldn't say it was a hard truth. Um, I I work in marketing as a day job, so I kind of more or less knew that that's how you know things were. But just the fact that you know this was my my passion project that I'd pursued for a long time, it, it made it hard in that sense. And I feel like that's a point that a lot of authors they they might be able to acknowledge it, but they might forget it. You know, over the course of their publishing journey, is that publishers aren't there to be your friend; they're there to make money off of a product that you've produced. And so that's that's really something that people need to, to remember if they're trying to get published. I started describing my job as product designer to people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what that's what we are. We're, we're making a product and, and publishers are there to sell it. So it's uh, there's a lot of love, you know, that goes into it. I know there are a lot of people in publishing that are there because they love books. Um, but, you know, that 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 love is not the bottom line. It, it's definitely uh, colder than that. Yeah, for sure. And I think uh, a pretty solid corollary is software development, right? They're in their day jobs or whatever they're doing. They're writing code that is turned into a product and marketed and, and what have you. There's not anything sentimental about code, uh, but when it comes to our stories, which is really a, a pretty similar product, if you if you think about it, there tends to be a lot of sentimentality on the part of authors, and understandably so, I think, um, especially being an author myself and knowing what goes into you know coming up with and writing a story. Uh, but that's you're right; that's just not what it is once it hits a, a the commercial world. And I think we need to understand that that's going to significantly change, uh, or, or rather uh, the people that we're working with have a significantly different idea of who we are and what we're producing than we do, right? Now, I, I think uh, unless you two want to go deeper into mid-sized publishers and, and what the deal looked like and, and that whole process for Clay, my big question for you, Clay, and I suppose you, Sunny, but Clay, knowing what you do now, is there anything you would have done differently? So, you know, say you're coaching, I know you mentor a lot of people, say you're coaching somebody that finds themselves in roughly the, the same situation, uh, they're, they're on sub 
and have been for a while and and uh maybe they're getting a an offer from rebellion but have a few outstanding that haven't said no or yes yet is there anything you would do differently knowing what you do that's a tough question to to answer uh I would say because the answer is going to be different versus before my book sold um, compared to after it sold. Um, yep. If we're talking about before it sold, I think, it, you know, once you get an offer that that rolls in, um, just reaching out um, to other authors, it, it can that can be pretty difficult at times. You know, connecting with an with a published author with a specific um, imprint. Um, just to you know, pick their brain and try and get an idea of all of the of the benefits that they might have gotten that that go beyond just you know deal size. Um, I feel like that's pretty straightforward advice that that everyone should you know j- just to do your research and, and get a bit better grasp of it. Um, yeah. I don't feel like there was just so much that I didn't know, but I didn't know that I didn't know it, so it was very difficult for me to you know to to follow those those threads. Um, but as far as after my deal, um, what I would do differently. Uh, I don't know if I would do anything differently. Um, I think if I were to do things differently, it would be mostly pertaining to my mental health and, and properly managing it. Uh, but mm. the thing is, is that, you know, once you sign your deal and the, and the ball gets rolling, there, there's so many things outside of your control. If, if I were to be, you know, critical of my publisher doing this versus doing that, um, I don't know if, you know, critiquing that would have really made any difference um because they were still going to make the decisions that they ended up making um i would yeah it would just be about you know protecting myself mentally um and you know properly managing my expectations would probably be the the big thing that i would do differently no yeah so just one quick comment your suggestion to reach out to published authors to do some more research and, and get the real lay of the land i think what i didn't realize at first is that reaching out to just any author uh with first my agent right when when i got an uh, an offer from my agent i reached out to other uh authors who had been or were with him to ask how you know what the relationship looked like and whether it had gone well and then when it came to my publisher i did even less, right? Uh, there, there wasn't a whole lot of research I did. It was just, wow, this is Tor, and I'm stoked to be with them, right? But what I might suggest to somebody, especially if they find themselves in the uh, situation that I did, and and you know they don't really know upfront what signing their deal means and what their deal size might mean, I wonder if a publisher would be open to a request for references basically wouldn't that be nice yeah yes it really would you know i would i would have loved to talk to a few authors who had signed similar deals to mine you know a year two even three in the past because two or three years down the road might be the first time that they really understand what they signed so whether you can get that information from your prospective publisher or not that's what I'd be looking for is who has signed deals like the one I have on the table with this exact publisher and not just like a year ago or six months ago, because they probably don't know much more than you do. Who's signed these deals and actually been published and, and their books out in the world and they've gone through the process I'm about to go through because that's who I ended up learning the most from. And especially once we, you know, we got our, our little friend group together and 
we is mostly Sunny got our little group together. But that that's been life changing in terms of my my experience as an author and my outlook on potentially being an author for quite some time. That's been huge. So friend groups one thing, but I think that reference of people who went through something with that same publisher would have been hugely valuable. And are they still in the industry? Because for those who don't know the statistics, 60% of people never publish more than one book. By three books, 80% of us are gone for the industry. By, was it six books, 90% of us are gone, something like that. It's really bleak statistics. Basically, most people are gone within five or six years. Um, So if you can find people who are still in the game, that's, yeah, do we have somewhere to point people or point ourselves for those statistics? Because I really want to see those numbers. That's incredible. I There's a, a variety of resources. I would struggle to pin them all down, but I do have concrete ones I recommend. So one is a book called Before and After the Book Deal by Courtney Mom. I'm not affiliated with her, but it was the first thing I'd read that's close to an industry Bible. I mean, she goes into detail. She goes into like how much you can expect to get. She goes and, and it's a brilliantly funny book. It's very informative. Um, It has wonderful chapter headings like my sales suck. Should I crawl under a rock and die? Uh, And, (laughs) and just handles all the, the, the difficulties of publishing with a lot of humor and grace. If you can't afford to buy the book or you can't find it in a library, there is a nine episode podcast called, Track Changes First Draft with Sarah Eney, which covers most of the material that's in Courtney Mom's book. And it just goes like each episode is like agents, publishers, deal, marketing, you know, that kind of thing. If you don't like listening to podcasts, it's in transcripts, much, much tidier than our transcripts. So that is all there online and that's free. Um, the other one is Print Run Podcast with uh, Laura Zatz and Eric Hain, and that's a very good, very informative one. Uh, and it's still ongoing and updating. Uh, they have tons of all between those two. You've got a ton of, of info and, and data there. Um, and I guess if I was going to pass things awesome. on to new writers, it would just be that you probably should have goals going into publishing. I think goals are almost taboo. People are like, oh, I don't want to hope to have lots of money because that's like arrogant or something. And it's like, but if you don't have a goal, you can't work towards it. I think goals help you decide what, you know, like Clay had this clear goal of, I, I want to be with a certain kind of publisher and get have, be in Barnes and Noble, so I can say no to this agent offer, and that informs that decision. Or I want to be. Yeah, I've met some people yeah. who are like, I want to hit New York Times list. It's like, okay, that's not my goal, but it's yours, so that means you need Big Five probably and stuff like that. Um, we just have to think about it, I guess. Think about the future. Yeah, if you want to hit the list, you have to be not just Big Five, but probably a big contract with Big Five. Yeah, but just like if if you have specific ideas of like, I need this much money or it's not worth my time, that's fine. But then you go into that knowing what you walk away from. Yeah, and you should know how that reduces your odds of success as well. And uh, going back to to my suggestion about reaching out to um, to, to, to authors to get an idea of, of what the experience might be like, um, that comes with an asterisk because... It just kind of goes back to the very nature of why this information is so hard to come across. Uh, Authors tend to not want to share that information just due to power dynamics. They're really, you know, afraid of of souring the relationship with their publisher because writing means so much to them and they want to keep publishing and they're afraid that they might jeopardize that by being truthful. And then on the opposite side of the spectrum, you you might get authors who have 
had really great experiences with with publishers, but you can't necessarily trust what they have to say because they might be one of those the 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 darling of of their of their publisher, and so they their experience might not be representative of what you might end up experiencing going into it. It's hard to really know what to expect um, when you don't know people and you're trying to break in and and get to know those people because. You know, like you said, Scott, um, so much of this information is just accrued very slowly over time by by making friends with, you know, among your peer group of authors and, and comparing what, what your experience is is with them. And falling into pit traps and discovering the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, hopefully that's what, you know, podcasts like these are for is, is you know, you've, you've got authors who are willing to to share all this information to anyone who's who's willing to listen and hopefully help them manage their expectations, you know, going to publishing. That's exactly our intent to be the friend to the friendless and uh, help people get a real sense of what the publishing world looks like for people in it, rather than the gold tinged view that people tend to uh, put off. Cause I, I think I'd, I'd add to your asterisks the very frequent finding that people in the industry, even if their experience hasn't been positive, they try to spin it as positive. They want to just continue to build their brand, and they they have this hope that there can be some grassroots movement to, to find that success they've been hoping for. People are very hesitant to associate themselves with any sort of uh, negative experience or admit that they... Uh, you know, didn't have exactly the result or the journey that they had hoped to in publishing. So fake it till you make it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of fake it till you make it. I mean, I can totally understand why people, you know, go that route. Um, some really helpful advice that I ended up getting is to, to never, you know, badmouth your own, your own product, because if, um, people see that you don't believe in yourself then they won't have any reason to believe in you either. And so I, I can get the, the, the wanting to, you know, make, things come off as everything is, is fine and dandy. So it's, it's, it's a really fine line to, to, to follow of, of wanting to be realistic and help, you know, help others out by giving them, you know, good information of, of what to expect while at the same time, you know, not wanting to, you know, be too down on yourself. Well, and like you said, a very good book or a very good product in this industry can absolutely be buried by the process. Right. And I mean, there there are really good books out there that never get past uh, the agenting process or the submission process. I think it's 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 a lot of it too. Is just people buying into the whole you know the whole concept of hype that seems to to dominate you know publishing is 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 wanting by by making everything sound as great as it is. They're they're hoping to con- contribute to their own little you know, bubble of, of hype for, for their product that they're, that they're putting out. Well, thank you for that, Clay. That was, uh, that, that was genuinely fantastic. Um, I guess if you want a chance to plug yourself, feel free and go for it. Yeah. So uh, in case you didn't uh, find out by now, my book <laughs> Flames of Mira came out uh, July of 2022 uh, through Rebellion Publishing. It is a dark fantasy novel. The paperback should be releasing later this, this summer. Um, and the, the sequel was supposed to come out this year, but um, after some technical difficulties, you could say, um, it, it's getting pushed back to next year. Um, uh, if 
it hasn't been announced by the time this airs, then consider me announcing it now. Um, it should be right now. It's supposed to come out July of 2023. So yeah, looking forward to it. You can, oh, and you can find me on Twitter at Clay Harmon, Roman numeral two and clayharmonauthor.com. Oh, and I have an author Instagram too. I think it's Clay Harmon author. Oh. And a TikTok. That's- and I have a TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> Follow me on TikTok. It's Clay Harmon author. I post really, really stupid <laughs> fun videos on that too because i have nothing better to do with my time so yeah uh well you heard the man go check out flames of mira and find his fantastic tiktok videos you won't regret it you've been listening to the publishing radio podcast with sunny dean and scott drakeford tune in next time for more in-depth discussion on everything publishing industry see you later 